0: open your Bibles to Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, uh, Philippians chapter 1, I want to invite you to stand up if you can, Philippians 1, starting verse 27, only let your manner of life or your conduct of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you. But also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now here that I still have. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Please be seated. We were singing, and I was noticing how most of our hymns, most of the songs we sing, talk about the death of Christ. The cross of Jesus. We just sang the the gospel song. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross He took my sin. By His death I live again. Think about all the hymns we sing. and, And the centrality of the cross and the death of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is inseparable from the death of Christ. And what He accomplished on the cross. So Paul says... In 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I wanted to remind you of the gospel by which you are saved. And then he goes on to explain what this gospel is that Christ died for our sins. That's Paul defining the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Paul also says, that's how central the cross and the death of Jesus is. He says, For I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him, what? Crucified. To the Galatians, he declares, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's from Jesus' death on the cross that the blessings of God flow. It was on the cross that Jesus borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Isaiah fifty three. It was the crucifixion of Christ that demonstrated God's love for us Romans five, seven through eight. Jesus' death redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians three thirteen. It was his blood that brought redemption for us, Ephesians one seven. According to Colossians 2.13, the cross canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. According to Ephesians 1.7 and Matthew 26.28, Jesus' death on the cross gave us the forgiveness of our trespasses and sins. We have now been justified by His blood shed on the cross, Romans 5.9. Jesus' death took away our condemnation, Romans 8.34. His blood purifies our conscience. Hebrews 9.14 And so many other blessings. You can go home this afternoon, get your New Testament and see how many blessings flow from the death of Christ. As you can see, the New Testament, the Old Testament, is very clear that the death of Christ was not something that was just bring some hope. But was effective. Jesus died and He accomplished that. His death on the cross was efficacious, powerful, effective. That's why when He was about to die at the last hour on the cross He shouted it's finished. It's accomplished. What I came to do it's done. Not that Jesus is in heaven hoping that His death will have some effect. He has the effect. It's powerful death. We sing, There is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's vein. And when sinners plunge underneath the flood, they lose all, not maybe, hopefully, they lose all their guilty stain. But I fear that we have been forsaking, ignoring, rejecting, despising. One of the most beautiful aspects of the death of Christ what Christ accomplished something that the New Testament keeps emphasizing over and over again and that's the unity of God's people when he died on the cross he accomplished the unity of God's people I have heard people saying that, oh if there is one thing That Jesus prayed that has never been accomplished is that his people be one. No, 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 no. The New Testament is very clear that he accomplished that. He unified his people. For example, in John chapter 10, in that majestic discourse of Jesus about being the good Davidic shepherd of Israel. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Pay attention, because Jesus keeps doing that. He keeps relating the relationship of Him and His people with His relationship with the Father and the Spirit. He says, And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning Israel. I must bring them also. I hope to bring them also. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be what? One flock and one shepherd. In John chapter 11, the Apostle John now interprets what Caiaphas said. So in John chapter 11, verses 49 through 52, but one of them, one of the religious leaders, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John explains, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he explains here. He says, He did not say this on his own accord. He had no clue that what he was actually saying was prophetically. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also together into what? Into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. In John chapter 17, we hear... That beautiful prayer of Christ, the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in the, in the Bible. He says, I'm praying for them, for those who the Father had given to Him. And then he says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. And then he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be what? one, even as we are one. And he continues in chapter 17. That's a glorious chapter. He says, I do not ask for this only, but also for those who will believe in Me. Who are those who will believe in Him? We. We. Through their word, that they may all be what? One. One. Just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in Us, so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. The glory that You have given Me I have given to them. Why is He giving His glory to His people? That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. That's Jesus. That's just a glimpse of Jesus Statements of how his death would bring the unification of his people. Paul follows right after Jesus Christ. And you cannot read Paul's letters without noticing his great emphasis on the unity of God's people. You cannot read Romans, the letters to the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Philippians... Even the other letters without noticing the great emphasis that Paul puts in the unity of the church, fighting against divisions. The metaphors that Paul uses to speak about the church. Let's just think about the word church. What does the word church mean? From the Greek ekklesia. The assembly. What is an assembly? A group of people united for one purpose. Paul used the metaphors of the church as a body, a household, a building, an army. And that's beautiful because these metaphors help us understand the nature of biblical unity. What is biblical unity? And then you think about these metaphors... And it becomes clear what biblical unity is. So, for example, think about a body. You, a body is not formed by one finger. You never see an eyeball and you say, hey, here's a body. And even the eyeball is formed by other many aspects. So, you think about a body and you have different members. A diversity of members. But they're all functioning with one purpose. Think about a temple. If you're going to go build a temple, is it helpful if you buy only bricks? Can you build a temple buying only bricks? You need other material for the temple building. Think about a household, a family. You have a father, a mother, ancient households, you had servants, slaves, children, in laws. Are they all the same? You have diversity. Think about an army they, all the different soldiers. When Jesus prayed that his sheep would be one flock, he knew very well that Peter was very different from Levi. He knew very well that James was different from Simon. Each one had a very unique character aspect, characteristic. So whatever our understanding of biblical unity is, it cannot erase the different gifts, personalities, backgrounds, ethnicities, and peculiarities of each individual member. So, whatever our understanding of biblical unity is, it cannot erase, abolish the different gifts, the different personalities, the different backgrounds, the different ethnicities and peculiarities of each individual member. We are going to develop more as we walk through Philippians because Paul is going to explain what biblical unity is. But just so we are thinking through this... Uh, One word used to speak about unity in the church is the Greek word symphonel. Symphonel. Where you have symphony. Symphony. Think about a symphony orchestra. A large orchestra of winds, strings, percussion. And they all play symphonically. They bring a beautiful harmony as they are playing. And you think about one, one of the definitions of unity, if you get a dictionary, is related to harmony. Harmony goes back to the Old Testament, the concept of shalom, peace, harmonious. This harmony and unity among God's people has always been His delight and His desire for His people. So, for example, Psalm 133, 1. In Psalm 133, we see in the Old Testament, the psalmist says, Behold! Look at! Pay attention! Listen! To what? How good and pleasant. The good there, Tov, goes back to the Genesis account, that the Lord would make something and was good. It's beautiful. When brothers, referring to fellow countrymen, people who share the same goals, dwell in unity, in harmony. And you think about the Old Testament, the psalmist is singing that, he's declaring that because a few times a year, all the Jews would gather together in Jerusalem for the feasts. Do you remember? Maybe the Passover feast, Pentecost. And they would gather together. All the Jews were supposed to be in Jerusalem for that feast. And in those very rare occasions, when they are all together, they would be sharing homes. So Jews from the south, Jews from the north, from the west, east, they would be there and they would be sharing their food. They would be dwelling together in tents. And the psalmist says how beautiful that is. Once in a while we can see the beauty of God's people all unified, worshiping Him, serving Him, sharing their goods. But if you think, even in the Old Testament it was not complete yet. Because there were other sheep from other fold. It's this beautiful harmony and unity among God's people that was achieved completely through Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of Acts keeps showing over and over again. And they were together, dwelling together in unity. And what were they doing? Sharing what they had with each other. So remember, think about Psalm 133 and the great delight that they had once a year, twice a year, to see the people together, You move to Acts. Now it's the death of Christ accomplished. You have this unity and not only Jews, but Gentiles also. And this unity is so beautiful, so majestic that Paul Paul calls the mystery of God. A lot of times we talk about the mystery in the New Testament. The mystery has been revealed. And Paul tells us what this mystery is. The mystery is that God, through Jesus, unified his people, Jews and Gentiles. What is the mystery? That was hidden before, now has been revealed that in Christ Jesus, there is the unification of God's people. So, Paul says, this mystery is, Ephesians 3.6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. You see, they share the same household, the same father, fellow heirs, members of what? The same body. Paul goes on to say, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So that, pay attention to that, that's one of the most beautiful statements in the whole Bible. So that, through what? The government, through the family, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says that the church is the theater, it's like a theater where God shows forth his beautiful wisdom. The church displays the beauty of the Trinity. That's what Paul is saying. The church shows forth the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the gospel. Think about the Trinity, the triunity, the unity of the Godhead in bringing His people into unity. And Paul says that the church is this beautiful theater where it displays... The wisdom of God. So why is and I think I have here, why is unity so important? Why is unity in the church so important? This is not a secondary issue in the church. Sadly, for so many people, unity in the church is not that important. But for the Bible, it's crucial. It's crucial because it reflects the gospel. Think about what is the gospel. The gospel is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Unify all things in Christ. And the church must reflect the gospel. This work of the Trinity bringing to unity the people of God. The one true and only God exists in a unity of three persons. And this triune God accomplished the work of unifying all things in Christ. And if you are taking notes, please write down Ephesians 1, 7-10. Ephesians 1, 7-10. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of, of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time. And look at that. To unite, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Why did Jesus die? To start the process of unification. Sin broke that process The harmony, the unity, and Jesus' death brings the restoration of this. So, please open your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. That's a famous prayer of Jesus Christ we saw earlier. Let's see again. Jesus prays here for the preservation, sanctification, glorification, and unification of His people. And one scholar says the goal of Jesus' prayer is unity. Spurgeon, he makes the following comment, referring to John chapter 17. He says, it was not enough that each sheep should be taken from the jaw of the wolf. Jesus would have all the sheep gathered into one fold under his own care. He was not satisfied that the members of his body should each of them be saved as the result of his death. He must have those members fashioned into a glorious body. Unity lying so very near to the Savior's heart at such a time of overwhelming trial. Remember, Jesus is about to die, and he's praying for the unity of his people is about to die. And what is in his heart? The unity of the church. He must have those members fashioned into a glorious body. Unity lying so very near the Savior's heart at such a time of overwhelming trial must have been held by him to to be priceless beyond all price. And look at Jesus prays in verse 11. Chapter 17 of John, verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in Your name, which You have given Me. And here is the purpose. Keep them. Why? Why should the Lord keep? Why should the Father keep His people? That they may be one, even as we are one. The unity of the church lies so near to the Lord's heart because the unity of the church reflects the unity of the Godhead, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. A union of purpose and mission. Look at verses 20 through 23. Jesus says, I do not ask for this only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. So that the world may believe. Look at the unity of the church. Is the gospel proclamation. So that they may believe. So they may see in the life of the church. The unity of the Godhead. The Trinity is the display of. Of beauty in unity. There is nothing more beautiful than the unity of the Trinity. You want to know what unity is? You look at the Trinity. You want to know what something beautiful is? You look at the works of God. And that's what Jesus is saying. When the church must be unified, why? Because then they can reflect the Trinity. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. So the unity of the Father and the Son through the Spirit is the pattern and means for the church to accomplish its Christ-given purpose. Jesus is not praying for a mammoth denomination here. That's not what he has in mind. I just want one mammoth denomination. No, that's not what he's praying right now. So let me ask you. What is the last, What is the opposite or the antonym of unity? Think about what. What is the opposite of unity? This unity... Disharmony, division, dissension, factions, contention. When did all this start? When did division and disunity and dissension and and, and, and faction begin? In the garden. Amen? We sin. There was nothing like that before. The world was in harmony. Beautiful harmony. And we know because as soon as sin enters, what happens? Division in the couple. Blaming. Accusing. Oh, the woman that you gave me. Division in the family. First murder of brothers. One brother murdering the other. Think about the nation of Israel. God calls the nation as a unity. He makes them one. And what does sin do to that nation? They divide. Becomes the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and they're fighting against each other. This unity is the mark of fallen men in Adam. The brokenness and division of Israel in the Old Testament showed their need of a Savior. Their division, their disharmony was a reflection of their disharmony with God Himself. We think about the Gospel. And the beauty of the Gospel is that the church is not in Adam. In whom is the church? In Christ. In Christ. The church is not in Adam. The church is in Christ. And that's why Paul declares the church to be God's theater. Where he displays his wisdom. People look at the church. And you look at the world. And you see this unity, this harmony. That's the mark of the world. And they're supposed to look at the church. And behold the theater where God is displaying his wisdom. Unity of His people, harmony, A going back to the Eden, because we are in Christ. People look at the church and they must see people from different backgrounds, different social classes, different levels of education, different colors of skin, different cultures, all united in their love for Christ Jesus, reflecting the image of the Trinity. That's why unity is so crucial in the life of the church. It reflects our new nature in Christ. Paul follows the priority and passion of Jesus in his life and ministry to maintain the unity of the church. It's part of Paul's new nature in Christ to seek to keep the unity in the churches. Lack of unity according to Paul is a perversion of the gospel. Look how Paul says in Ephesians, chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, verse one through six. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Can you can you hear the echoes of Philippians chapter one and two here? Calling here, is the factual call. It's salvation. That's what it is. It's salvation. I urge you to walk in a manner that's fitting, that matches your salvation, to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing to one another in love. And look at that. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, into one hope, that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. For Paul, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to behave in a manner that's fitting to the gospel, is to seek, to pursue unity in the church. And that's so basic. Because the gospel proclaims the unity of the the Trinity... Unifying all things in Christ, therefore, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, that's fitting to the gospel, we must be preserving, pursuing the unity of the church. Look at Paul says, eager, the word there, eager is diligent, zealous, fervent. Eager to do what? To create the unity. Does he say eager to create the unity? To maintain. Who created the unity? Christ Jesus. So the unity is given. Our duty, our obligation is to do what? Maintain this unity. Preserve this unity. The unity in the church already exists because of the Spirit of Christ. The same Spirit that united Father and Son is the Spirit that unites us into one body. So a person who is not zealous and eager to maintain the unity of the church is unworthy of the gospel. does not match with the gospel. And then if you keep reading Ephesians chapter 4, you see that Paul is going to say that Jesus ascended and then He gave gifts to the church to what? So the church can grow in unity think about the famous love chapter in the Bible what is the love chapter in the Bible yes 1 Corinthians 13 what comes before chapter 13 and what comes after 13 and what is Paul dealing with is that a wedding ceremony did he write 1 Corinthians 13 for a wedding ceremony What was happening in the church? Chapter 12, chapter 14. Divisions, quarreling, disunity in the church. Look at how Paul opens the body of his letter to the Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers. That's how he opens the body of the letter. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. But that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And then Paul goes on the rest of the letter to develop how they must be united. Why they must be united. And he gives them the only way to be united. The only way to to maintain, to preserve the unity in the body is by pursuing biblical love. A love that's patient and kind. A love that does not envy or boast. A love that's not arrogant or rude. A love that does not insist in its own way. A love that's not resentful. A love that does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. A love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the type of love there, there must be in a church for the church to remain united. Hoping the best of each other. How can there be unity if I don't hope the best? If as soon as you make a comment or something, instead of hoping the best of you, I'm hoping the worst of you. Oh, he's attacking me, I'm pretty sure. There can be no way. There can be no way to keep unity in a home, in a workplace, and especially in the church. If you are not hoping the best, believing all things, enduring all things. Can you imagine the first sign of pain? Oh, I cannot endure that anymore. Bye, guys. There is no way to keep unity like that. You see how precious unity is in the heart of Christ. And that leads us to the strong warnings to those who promote division in the church. It's in light of how precious, how costly, how crucial, how vital, how revealing unity is that we understand the seriousness of the warnings in the Bible given to those who bring disunity unity to the church. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Avoid these people. Titus three ten through eleven. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, what? Invite him over for coffee again. Have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self condemned. Brothers and sisters, do not entertain comments. Criticisms coming from a brother or sister in Christ that's about to bring this unity in the church. Gossip, backbiting, slander, denigrating comments about church members or church leaders, venting. I just need to vent a little bit. Just have a little frustration here that I want to share with you. stop, 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 stop. stop. Have you dealt with that person? Have you gone to that person? No, 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 but I just want to talk to you. No, 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 no. You go to that person first. All these things are satanic instruments to disturb the unity bought with the blood of Jesus and applied by the Spirit of Christ. What is Paul's command? A person comes to you. Abby, I just want to share it with you. Just, you know, David's so rude to me. And then he start entertaining. No, 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 no. I don't want to hear anything. Have you talked to David? He's sinned against you. You believe he's sinned against you. You talk to him. No. I just want to share with you. Nope. Go to him. Start entertaining, listening to people's complaints, criticism about church members, church leaders. And then you see you are part of this toolbox that belongs to Satan that's trying to create division in the church. Therefore, take heed of Paul's word. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division. They have nothing more to do with that person. Rick, I need to go out for coffee with you. I have some really nasty things to tell you about somebody else in the church. No, no, nope, I'm not having coffee with you. Right? And then now we understand, brothers and sisters, now we are ready to get to Philippians, chapter 2. If you don't understand how serious the problem of unity in the church is, you do not understand why Paul is spending so much ink, papyrus, and time writing about the problem of unity in the church. Paul has a very peculiar affection for this church, his great desire is to see the church in Philippi advancing in the gospel. And he knows that they cannot advance in the gospel if there is this unity in the church. It seems that Epaphroditus, a a a a he came to Paul and he brought some aid, he brought some money, and he also brought some terrible news that there are divisions in the church in Philippi. And Paul's great emphasis now through all Philippians is to, we cannot have a partnership in the gospel if there is division in the church. My joy cannot be complete if there is division in the church. How can we have a partnership in the gospel when the gospel proclaims the unity of God in unifying His people? There can be no partnership. Look at chapter 1 of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. And you start noticing how Paul, and I have been trying to tell you how Paul, in a subtle way, has been hinting the problem of division. Remember how he identifies himself as a slave of Christ. A slave never gets what he wants. It's never his will. Why do we have divisions in the church? James 4. You want. Then you cannot have. Then what happens? There is a war. He identifies himself as a slave. And he identifies them as what? In Christ. Saints in Christ Jesus. Meaning. Your new nature now is in Christ. You are in Christ. It's his will. That's verse 1. We also saw that Paul keeps using the all. Look at verse 2. Oh, verse 3, sorry. Oh, verse 1. To all the saints. Chapter 1, verse 1. To all the saints. And then verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine. For you all. Verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you all. Verse eight, for God's my witness, how I yearn for you all! And he keeps going. What is this? All, all, all of you, you all. Why is Paul doing that? Because that's how he sees them, and that's how they want. That's how he wants them to see each other. We are all united. It's not some here, some there. All. Paul throws his arms wide together, each and every one of his children in Philippi, pulling together brothers and sisters who have may drifted apart through misunderstanding or mismatched priorities. How about Paul's prayer, verses 11 through 12? Remember Paul's prayer for the Philippians? What does he ask? That your love will do what? Abound more and more. Love. Can you have an abundance of love and not have an abundance of unity? Then verses 12-26, Paul shows how he was dealing with those who were attempting to cause division and disunity. In humility, he ignores the attacks and focuses on the advancement of the gospel. And then starting in verse 27 of chapter 1, it's no longer subtle. Now he starts to deal very openly with the problem of this unity in the church. So he starts in verse 27. He starts calling them to stand firm in what? One spirit. With one mind. Striving what? Side by side. It's calling for unity in the body. And it's going to become... Public in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4. Look at verses 2 and 3. So Paul begins discreet in a subtle way. Then he moves to less subtle, less discreet. And now he becomes public with the problem of disunity in the church. Paul says, I entreat Iodia, and I entreat Suntuhe, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Can you see today how many people ask Paul, Paul, why are you embarrassing these two ladies? Making public. You're bringing their name to the public. They are not fornicators. They are not murderers. Why are you bringing their names to the public? Humiliating them in public. Can you imagine, if I stand here in a sermon and I say, Please, please, Ruth and Debbie, agree with one another in the Lord. Please, the division in your relationship is harming the body. So many of you would be shocked, traumatized. He's bringing to the public. You see that shows how low we view unity in the church. Paul views unity in the church so high that he's willing to call them by name. Because he knows that they are about to harm the gospel and the church very badly. There is something greater for Paul than the preservation of embarrassment or the preservation of the honor of one's name. And that's the preservation of the unity that Jesus bought with his blood. So, without grasping how precious and crucial unity is in the life of church, you will not understand the whole letter of Philippians. Honestly, it began, I was just thinking about an introduction to the sermon. I said, oh, maybe I just need to say a little bit of how important unity is in the church. And then I said, no, that needs to be a whole sermon. Otherwise, it makes no sense. How many people come to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11? We were talking last Sunday. That's a wonderful sermon for Christmas time. But we are removing out of the context. What is the context? Why is he, why is he talking about Jesus? Because he's showing them. He's showing them what humility is. In order for them to have the same mind agree with one another and have unity in the church. Now you can come to Philippians chapter 2 and understand why Paul spends so much of his time, of his effort, of his labor, of his sweat dealing with the problem of disunity in the church. And we take this subject so lightly, sadly, we take so lightly. People creating this unity in the church, breaking the harmony of the church, and we entertain that. We have them over. We comfort them instead of confronting them. So many people never think and pray for the unity in their local church. They do actually the opposite. Gossip, complaints, grumbling, criticism. They destroy what's the most basic for the life of a church. That's unity. And I have much to say, but I don't have time to say that. I will say for next Lord's Day. But, unity in the church is not a utopia. It's not a... A dream out there. It's a reality. It's a reality that I have been experiencing in this church. It's a reality because Christ accomplished that. And He gave to each one of His children the Holy Spirit. That brings the fellowship of the saints. The unity of the church. That's why we are so concerned in this church to know if, the, if people who are aspiring to be members, they're actually Christians. Do they have the Spirit of God? Because only if you have the Spirit of God, you can create unity in the church. And we can, we must experience this unity, because Christ accomplished that. And that's just, just look at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to stop right here. Here's the foundation for true unity in the church. So, therefore, and the if here is a if of certainty, I will talk more about that next Lord's Day, but this if here is not an if of question. It's not always, is there any comfort? No, it's an if of certainty. There can be even translated as sense. If there is any encouragement in Christ, I prefer the word comfort. The Greek word here, paraklesis, the word "comfort." There's any comfort in Christ and I think Paul is drawing the comfort from the promises of God in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 40, "Comfort my people." Comfort my people says your God. And then he describes the Messiah coming as a shepherd and carrying his lamb in his arm bringing about a new Exodus, saving his people. Or Isaiah 51:12, "Comfort, comfort my people. I am he who comforts you," says the Lord. Psalm 23, verse 4. His staff and His rod do what? They comfort me. It's a picture of salvation. Sin is the opposite of comfort. Think about everything that's the opposite of comfort. That's sin. Sin brings discouragement. Sin disheartens. Sin brings trouble. Brings you down. Sin brings distress. Sin weakens people. That's why Paul says, when we were still weak, Christ came to redeem us. The word comfort from the Latin to come with power, conforti, it come with force, and we have that in Christ. Look at that. If since there is comfort in Christ, therefore he can say, complete my joy and be united. Don't we have comfort in Christ? I remember my life after Christ. There was no comfort. No comfort at all. In Christ, all the comfort that I needed. And now, because we are in Christ, we must comfort one another. Encourage one another. Not tear each other down, destroy Weaken the, 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 the unity of the church. No, because we are in Christ, now we what? We come with force to comfort the unity in the church. So I pray, I pray the the Lord will enable us to seek and pursue to maintain the unity that Christ has bought with His blood. Was given to us through His Spirit. Let us be a church that like the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul is greatly concerned with true biblical unity. May we all realize the unity of the body was purchased with the costly blood of Christ. I pray that we would conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Eager, eager to maintain the unity that Jesus bought. And we must because we are in Christ. Lord, we we come before you and we thank you. Our lives were a disaster. Talk about chaos, disharmony, lack of unity. That was us apart from you. And the beauty of the gospel is this beautiful work of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uniting all things in Christ. Thank you. Thank you for the unity we have in you. Thank you for the comfort we have in you. So help us, Holy Spirit. Help us to comfort one another. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to be eager, zealous, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the chains of peace. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.